slander. It's when someone says something about you that is just not true. I'm a grace boy. I'm proud of it. Sonship theology is my theology because I believe it's biblical theology. Hyper grace, no such thing, even though there's a book written that's pretty popular. You can't have too much grace. But people look at people who preach the gospel like this and they say, you're an antinomian. You must be against the law. You're against holiness. You don't believe in obedience. Slander. They're just wrong. Obedience is a really big deal to God. It's a really big deal in the scripture. You're going to see it in this text. I think that I now believe more in God's holiness, God's law, and our requirement to obey than I ever have in the history of my life. Obedience is a non-negotiable. It's even better than sacrifice. Now, in this story, we're going to see this, this guy Saul, but he's not going to be so different than us. And that's my, God, my job is to place us kind of with Saul and show you how we make too little of obedience, which means we make too little of the gospel. Let me try to prove this to you. Saul is a man who's received such grace. He was this nobody. He was kind of little in his own eyes. The Lord selected him and anointed him and fell upon him. And the Lord used him mightily. And he went out and he won that first battle against Nahash and the Ammonites. And he came back home and the grace just continued to flow. Famous he was. Popular. The people loved him. Incredible grace. He got to enjoy all the benefits of royalty, whatever that was in those days. And then he had a son. Jonathan was his son's name. And every father would have been proud to look at Jonathan and say, that's my boy. How did Saul respond to all of this grace? He sinned greatly. Samuel came to him and pronounced his condition. You're sinful. He pronounced the sentence. You have sinned so greatly that your son Jonathan and his son and his son will never reign on Israel's throne. The kingdom is being taken away from you and your family and given to someone else after God's own heart. But the grace of God didn't stop. We're now 20 years or so down life's road and Saul is still on Israel's throne. And he's still winning some battles here and there whenever he does decide to man up and go into conflict. God's grace has been great to Saul, despite his sin. And now in the text, Samuel is back. They have been separated from, another, from each other for a long time. This is interesting. After all these years, here comes Samuel with a fresh anointing. Ha, huh, we've done this before. And a fresh commissioning. Ha, huh, we've done this before. Maybe this is a new chapter. Maybe the Lord's not done with me yet. Saul is a man who's enjoyed God's grace. Now, along with God's grace, 
came God's law and thus Saul's obligation. God comes to Saul and he makes an announcement, a command, a duty, a mission, something he had to do, a precept. Saul, I want you to go and take out all the Amalekites. It's a very, very clear command. <laughs> no one left alive. No animals left alive. Don't be acting like the pagan king that Israel wants you to be like and be carting back Agag in chains. Kill him. All the women, all the children, all the animals, because I have devoted them to destruction. In the Hebrew, that word is cherem. You got to get that weird thing in your voice. Cherem. It's when God declares a holy war. So notice, this isn't the church's holy war. This isn't Saul's holy war. This is what God, the judge of all the earth, has looked and commanded Saul to do. Saul has a commandment. He has received law from God. Why is God picking on the Amalekites so? Well, they are ancient descendants of Esau. And just like Esau was a thorn in Jacob's side, the Amalekites have never stopped chomping at the bit to harm Israel. Even when Israel was in Egypt, it's like the Amalekites are right there on the border waiting for the day when they're going to get to come out of Egypt so they can have their turn harassing God's people. And that's exactly what happens. The exodus happens, Israel comes out, and even before they're out, these terrorists, they don't attack with a frontal assault. They come around the back and start picking off all the men, women, the disabled men, the women and the children and the elderly who are at the back. It's then in numbers that God says, I'm going to blot their name out of the book. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the people, the Amalekites, their day is coming. In the promised land, once they arrived, they were like raiding terrorists who would come in, plunder villages, and then burn the crops as they left town. And now we have God saying it's payday. It's judgment day. God is not some emotional tyrant who just kind of reacts in anger. This is over 400 years. You know, when God came down and he talked to the people of Sodom, he gave them maybe hours. When God said Jericho's going down, he gave them days. With Noah's neighbors, he gave them years. The Amalekites have had centuries, centuries to reconsider, centuries to listen to God, centuries to look at what God has done with the other nations who have been hostile to Israel and Yahweh. They have watched other people go down over and over and over again. And so what are we learning here? That God has not changed his mind. God has not forgotten their deeds. God is just what we call long-suffering. He is patient. He is merciful. For a long, long, long time. He is slow to wrath. 
But never get confused. Though God promises and does not immediately perform, that does not ever mean that he's going back on his promise. Saul's obligation, it's not evil. God is going to do that which is right in the judge's eyes. God is going to do that in this day that he's going to do at the end of days when he casts every man, woman, boy, girl into the lake of fire who do not have a relationship with him. This is true truth. Unless you're going to carve your Bible up, this is what Jesus says. Do not fear the man who can harm your body, but fear him who can harm both body and soul in hell. But God is slow to wrath, patient, waiting, calling, gathering, offering. And it's Saul's obligation now, just as when the judge in a civil court makes a declaration that this man deserves death and they put him on death row. That time on death row passes and keeps going until the day comes when the sentence must be executed. Saul is called to be the executioner of God. And this is not negotiable. Partial obedience is disobedience. You may want to write that down because that's coming back up several more times. Partial obedience is disobedience. When God gives his law, we are under obligation to do it with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, all the time. That's what it means to obey the obligation. So then we see Saul's performance. How'd he do? Well, he gave it a good go. He really did. He uh, assembled the troops, 210,000, I believe it was. He traveled and went in their direction. When he got there, he showed mercy on the Kenites, the family of Jethro, Moses' wife. And then he went to work. He did his best. He went at it and fought the war, defeated the foe, pursued them as they fled destroyed a bunch of people and things. Saul gave it a good shot. I think people would have been pretty happy. We're going to see he was pretty happy with what he did. Saul looks there and he goes, I've kept all the commandments of the Lord. I've obeyed God. I'm a law keeper. But this is what we know, that Saul did not utterly destroy all the animals. He didn't destroy anything else he considered good. Later on, you'll learn he didn't destroy all the fighting men of Amalek, and Agag is still being carted behind in chains so he can go back to Saul's home and maybe cut his thumbs off and put them under his table and give him crumbs so that everybody will know Saul's the man. But Saul gives himself a clap Pats himself on the back, thumbs up. I performed well. Yes, if Saul were at school, the teacher might have given him a grade of A minus. If he's at a country club, his friends would have given him the silent golf clap for only shooting three over par. If he is at the office and came in for his annual review, 
he might have received that stamp that said, above average. If he's at the YMCA, there's no doubt about it, he would have gotten the performance trophy because he gave it a good shot. Yes, he's fairly impressed with himself, and so too might be anyone else looking at it, unless you're the only one that matters. The lawgiver. The lawgiver says, wait. I'm the judge of all the earth. I'm the one who clearly communicated my law. There was no ambiguity. And God that night wakes up Samuel and has a conversation with Samuel and gives his review. Saul has not performed his commandments. He has turned from following me. Regret, remorse, deep emotional sorrow is now flowing from my heart. Samuel shares the heart of God and all night long angrily cries. It appears that we have a difference of assessment here. Saul's pretty pleased. God's not pleased at all. At this point, we see Saul's confession. Now, I know when I use that word confession, you're normally thinking of confession like, let's confess our sins, kids. That's a good confession. <laughs> That's not Saul's confession. Saul is a guy who everywhere he goes proclaims his own righteousness. So Samuel hits the road in the morning and the first place he goes is Carmel. Maybe I can find Saul there. He doesn't find Saul there. Did you see what you found in the text? What did he find when he got to Carmel? Saul had set up a monument for himself. Uh, most patriarchs and leaders in the Old Testament when these prophets and judges, and they, when they received a victory from the Lord, they were quick to set up an altar. An altar that they would bow before, offer their sacrifices on, in order to give all praise and glory to the God who gives them the victory. Not Saul. He sets up a monument for himself. He's raising his hand going, I have obeyed all the commandments. I'm a law keeper. I've performed well. Shaking his head, Samuel leaves Carmel and heads to where Saul's supposed to be found at Gilgal. He travels to Gilgal wondering, what am I going to see? And it's like before he even arrives in the city, here comes Saul bouncing out. Cheerfully. And what are the words out of his mouth? Hi, Samuel. I have done everything. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You're seeing this theme. He likes what he has done. He thinks he's kept the laws, the commands, the obligations of God. He's righteous. He's like the Pharisee who could stand there praying, Oh God, I, <laughs> I thank you that I'm not unrighteous like those other people. Or the rich young ruler who raises his hand and says, Yep. I'm good. I'm obedient. All the commands of the Lord I have kept. Throw some more at me. This is Saul's attitude. 
At this point, Samuel's a little sarcastic, and he goes, What's that? Can you speak up a little louder, Saul? I can't seem to hear you. It sounds, there's so much noise. It sounds like a farm here or something. Oh, those animals. At this point, wouldn't it be great if Saul would just fall on his knees and quit confessing his righteousness, but start confessing his unrighteousness? Nope. Not going to happen. Saul begins to play the defense attorney, says confidently, I have performed. He doesn't fess up. He points to the part of the law. Hey, I mean, God gave a big law and I kept part of it. And then he blamed other people. It really wasn't me. It was all these other people that follow my leadership. A lot of times we even blame God. If you would have removed away the sin, then I wouldn't have done that. And so therefore, since there's original sin and ongoing sin and indwelling sin, and I don't want to sin, but you're the one, you blame God. This is what Saul's doing as he continues to do anything, to throw out any argument he can, to confess his own righteousness. This is when I like the way Kurt read, Stop! This wasn't a church. We'd say, shut up, but this is church, so we won't say that. The nonsense. What are you doing? I know what the people may think. I know what you now think. Let me tell you what God thinks. You were small and God anointed you. He commanded you, but you have not performed. You have turned from following him. You've been disobedient. You've done evil. Regret is flowing from the heart of God. At this point, Saul confesses his sin. No, he doesn't. That would be wishful thinking. We see him again repeating all the same arguments, confessing his lawful performance, saying, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. At this point, it's time for Samuel's sermon. You think you've obeyed the voice of the Lord. You think you've performed. Well, let me first of all tell you, Saul, and let me tell you, Horizon friends, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To perform is better than to do your Presbyterian thing. To work is better than having to do penance. I mean, God loves ritual worship. Let me, did you hear me? So I don't want you to slander me and say, God loves ritual worship. He's the one who invented it. He's the one who wrote it down and gave it to Moses. He's the one who promises curses on all those people who would mess with his worship. All of those smells and bells and bread and feasts and clothes and tents and all those things, those all came from God in the Old Testament. They all were good because they pointed to the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all preached the gospel of Jesus Christ who is yet to come. And they were all a big deal. Holy to the Lord is His worship. This text is not saying that God doesn't care about ritual worship. This text says God cares more 
about obedience. He cares more about performance. He cares more about law keeping. As a matter of fact, we only have sacrifice and burnt offerings because we don't have honorable obedience. If Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden, there would be no slaughtering of lambs. There would be no slaughtering of the son. The only reason we have sacrifice is because we don't have obedience. Saul, you have disobeyed the Lord and you've gathered the best of these animals and then you have brought yourself with your sinful heart, your sinful actions, your sinful belongings and you just want to gather before the Lord and do your little religious ritual and think that everything's going to be good? That's not the case. Rebellion. Your rebellion is like witchcraft. Your rebellion is like sorcery and your arrogance or presumption is like iniquity or idolatry. You're a word rejecter. There's no doubt about it. Are you getting this? Saul is over here doing his little ritual religion, raising his hand saying, I'm righteous, I'm good. And the Lord's over here saying, I don't like your obedience. And I don't need your ritual worship. How does Saul handle this? Well, he hears Samuel say, the Lord rejects you from being king. And quickly he says, I've sinned. But this is the difference I think I can show you between worldly sorrow that really has regret for the consequences versus repentance. Can't we just get through this? Can't we walk with me hand in hand? And Samuel looks at him and doesn't respond to him as if he's really repentant. No. The Lord has rejected you. I've rejected you. You're excommunicated. Saul expresses more worldly sorrow. Samuel responds, no. We're not reconciled. Samuel Grabs, Saul grabs for Samuel, grabs his robe, rips it. How does Samuel respond now? Not like, ooh, I better reconsider. You're really serious about this repentance thing. No, he looks at him, and the man who speaks forth the word of God says, just like you have torn my robe, now the Lord has already torn the kingdom from your family. He tears it from your clutching hands. Saul then says, I did all this to worship your God. Notice that was three times in the text. He doesn't call him my God. I did all this to, 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 to worship your God. And then the best thing he can say now is this. Couldn't you just at least come back with me to worship before the elders so that I can be honored? This is not gospel repentance. This is worldly sorrow when you start realizing that the hand of God is getting ready to fall. Samuel says, go to worship. Go to worship. Yeah, let's go to worship. But this worship service is going to be nothing like anyone ever expected. So here comes Saul and Samuel, and they go back to worship. The text says, before 
the Lord. Coram Deo, before his face. What does this worship service look like? It's quite interesting. Samuel watches Saul bow. Samuel then summons Agag. Now Samuel has two rebellious kings in his presence. Agag looks at Samuel and kind of smirks. I got this idea. He kind of lights up. Hey, it's going to get better now. I actually have sinned and I've gotten away with it. The day of judgment is going to pass me by again. But not on this day. Samuel's a man's man. He's a manly minister. Samuel did the next right thing called obedience. Before the Lord, Samuel carried out the Lord's decree of execution and hacked Agag to pieces as a part of the sacred worship service. And then, showing that we have no reconciliation between God and Samuel and Saul, the text ends with, they separate. There goes Saul, there goes Samuel, and the Word of God. Samuel grieves. God regrets. And Saul slides into ever-increasing stages of depravity. It gets worse and worse and worse. As the man who has sinned greatly keeps saying, I'm good, confessing his own righteousness. So now how do we apply this? A couple quick questions and we're done. Do we understand God's law? Do you know that He tells you, I want you to love me on the inside with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And that that then means I want you to love me on the outside with all that you do, with all that you say. And do you know that I want you to do all the commands? And do you know that I want you to do them all the time with all your heart, without exception, from the inside out? God is so wise and gracious and good. All of His laws are the absolute best God's laws are His obligations, His commands. They start with the big category of love. You can kind of divide them up in 10 if you want to. You can kind of divide them up into 613 more if you want to, and a whole bunch of others that are just principles and precepts. But God would have you understand He is a God who gives His law. Second question, do we understand our obligation? They're not suggestions. You don't get to pick and choose. The answer is just yes, sir. You have to want to do them and then do them perfectly. That's it. That's your obligation. They're all important. None of them are trivial. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we understand the consequences? There really is not a huge difference between karma and the covenant of works. Both of them have the principle of sowing and reaping involved, that if you do, you get rewarded. If you don't do, you get punished. The covenant of works makes it very, very clear in the Old Testament that God is the one who gives His law, and that if you keep it all 
perfectly all the time, you get righteousness points. But any time you break any of the laws in any way, whether externally or internally, you don't get credit. What was that phrase I told you to write down? Because impartial obedience, excuse me, partial obedience is disobedience. Do you really believe that? Because this will have ramifications for you who think that you're better than you used to be or for you who think you're going to get something in this life because you're naming it, claiming it, and living according to God's will or for you who think you're amassing wealth in heaven because you're doing righteous deeds here. Now, if you break any of the laws, you're guilty of breaking all of the laws and you have to do all the laws from the inside out with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all the time. And you're one to raise your hand and say, I, I like this contract. I like this covenant. Oh my goodness. Now we understand God's law, our obligations, the consequences, but do we understand our problem? God is not the YMCA. He doesn't give partial credit, participation trophies. He doesn't round up in final grading or give most improved awards. He looks at our good deeds and even says they're filthy rags. He looks at us and he says, in your own work ethic, as you give it a good go, as you try as hard as you can, as you make a big deal of obedience, which you should, and holiness, which you should, and the commandments with you should, he looks and he says, you have not performed. You have turned from following me. You have been disobedient. You have done evil and regret flows from my heart. You are rebellious. You're like a witch, a sorcerer. You're arrogant, presumptuous, full of iniquity, even an idolater, because all you do is reject my word. And God who looks with holiness like that, he's angry. He's always angry at sin. But he's patient and he hasn't squashed us yet. He's long-suffering, he's merciful, and he's slow to wrath, but never confuse his slowness to wrath with his changing his mind. God has not forgotten. Payday is coming. D-Day is coming. Judgment day is coming. God doesn't change. There's not an Old Testament version of God and a New Testament version of God. But do we understand our tendencies? Our tendency is to do what Saul did. None of us are quick to confess our sins. We don't like to confess them to God, much less to one another. So therefore, we start playing defense attorney. And we encourage our sin-troubled souls by focusing, well, at least even when I don't want to do the right things, at least I still do them. Nope, it's partial obedience. Oh, we focus on certain laws. Well, there's big sins and small sins, and I haven't broken any of the big sins in a long time. Nope, that's partial obedience. Well, then we write our own laws like we used to have to go to in one of the fundamentalist schools that I grew up in where you make up all these things that if you do those, then you're really holy and separated. Nope. First of all, you may have sinned by writing those laws because who makes you God to be able to demand other people follow your rules? Secondly, while you're disregarding God's rules, you're making a big deal of yours. Nope, that's partial obedience. Well, we pretend the end justifies the means. Nope. There's a righteous means and a righteous end. We encourage our sin-troubled souls by comparing ourselves to others. God's not comparing you to anyone else. He's comparing you to his law. 
or we encourage our sin-troubled souls by getting religious, kind of like the mafia dons who go and live the way they want to all week long, but then they're going to make their way to mass. And we think, well, if I, at least if I come to church or if I give my money or if I have my devotions a certain number of days in a row or if I uh, sing with my hands lifted instead of keeping them down or we come up with all these religious things we do. If I have my children baptized or if I'm baptized and if I come to the table, that's going to make up for no. None of this makes up for the obedience that is required. This is much more delightful to God than that is. But that doesn't keep us from confessing our righteousness because we really believe we're righteous. Never should we let our conscience be our guide. The law of God is your guide. Regardless of what other people say, regardless of what you say. So the last question maybe is this, will we continue arguing with God's prophet? It was gracious that Samuel even shows up. Why didn't God just send someone else to whack out and hack to pieces Saul like he did Agag? Because God's being merciful. But here is Samuel, Saul arguing with the prophet. And so I see Jesus Christ before you now. Forget me, look past me and see Jesus as he's sitting here and he's coming to you and he's saying, I love my law. And if you break one jot or tittle, you're guilty. And you've broken one jot or tittle. You're guilty. But yet you keep having this tendency to excuse yourself. You're guilty. And he's sitting there with his arms wide open, with his hands that are pierced, his, his feet that are pierced, his head that is bleeding. And he's saying, I know everything there is to know about obedience because I did it for you. And I know everything there is to know about sacrifice because I am the only possible sacrifice for you. And now he looks and he says this, will you obey? But he's not talking, first of all, about your duty. He's talking about, will you obey the faith? Will you obey and confess your sin? Will you obey and repent of your own self-righteousness? Will you obey and trust in the merit of Jesus Christ? Will you obey and quit trying to work it out? Because you're not going to do it. Obedience is, first of all, coming to the gospel. Resting in Christ. Knowing that if I never obey ever, I'm still okay. You know why? Because you'll never obey. Ever. Because partial obedience is disobedience. And so we obey by stopping our argument with the prophet, by submitting to the son and receiving what we don't deserve at all. For we are like Agag. We are like Saul. But Jesus offers us full and free pardon for all our sins to anyone who quits trying to obey to get them. And then what do we do? We worship by obeying. Even in this text, we see Samuel doing the next right thing. Because God is wise. He's good. He's gracious. His ways are clear. 
It is beautiful to follow. And so now Samuel goes and he takes care of business. There's a whole other sermon that can be preached on this, but I'm about ready to be done. Where Agag is like the sin nature. And as long as you allow it to just live, it's going to keep coming back and causing problems. And a good way to worship is to kill the old man. To go do holy war. To hack the Agag within to pieces. To make no peace treaty with sin and with evil. I love obedience. No, I don't. I shouldn't say that. Obedience is beautiful. I believe in it. It's best. It's required. It's our obligation. God's laws are beautiful. I am not saying live fast and free and don't worry about it. But I am saying, are you ready to obey? Or as the next slide says, or at least give it a really good try. Yeah, you should. Go for it. His ways are pleasant. One day in heaven, we're going to perfectly obey. Obedience is better than sacrifice. But I am so, so glad there's a sacrifice.